So pick it up in verse 4. We'll read the first parable, the parable of the lost sheep. It says, what man of you, Jesus speaking, what man of you having a hundred sheep, if he lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my, lost, my sheep that was lost. Just so, Jesus says, I tell you that there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Now, the first picture that Jesus wants to give his audience, both the, as we said, the tax collectors and sinners and the Pharisees and the scribes, is this picture of a good shepherd that is seeking after his wandering sheep. Because that's what a good shepherd does. A good shepherd doesn't go, ah, you stupid sheep. I hope the wolves eat you. A good shepherd pursues after his wandering sheep. Now, it's, it's amazing how many times people have, have brought this verse to my attention. Usually to say, you're not a very good shepherd. Now, that's meant, it's kind of meant to be tongue-in-cheek. It's actually true, but it's meant to be tongue-in-cheek. No, seriously, you're not a very good shepherd. You don't seek after this sheep. And you know what I have to say to them? Guess what? I'm not the good shepherd. Jesus is. He's telling the story to show what kind of God we serve. That's not to say that I shouldn't pursue people that are hurting. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that this parable is not about what we are to do, even we in leadership. This parable is about what God does. He's the good shepherd. Now, it's interesting here, in this story, a story that would be, uh, the first hearers would have understood perfectly, the idea of leaving the 99 is not letting them all be vulnerable. The idea of leaving the 99 is making sure that, okay, they're, they're in a place where they can graze under the under-shepherds, and I'm going to go now pursue this lost sheep. And this idea of putting the sheep on its shoulders, you might have seen pictures maybe of a shepherd with a lamb across his shoulders. You may have even heard a story, it's a myth by the way, it's not a true story, but a myth of that the, the, the shepherd might crack the legs or break the legs of the, shepherd, of the lamb and carry it so that that lamb was protected. It's actually not true. There's no evidence that that would actually happen. But what you, what, what you do see is this picture of a shepherd carrying its lambs on its shoulder is very specific. That Jesus is wanting us first to know the, lamb has, the shepherd has to carry the sheep because guess what? Sheep are prone to wander. We sing that song, right? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to lead the Lord, the God I love. This is why we need him when we're lost to not just say, hey, it's this way, walk this way, but to actually pick us up and carry us. This is the image that Jesus is trying to give his audience. He's trying to encourage his audience who are tax collectors and are sinners are probably wondering, is there any way out for me, any way back for me, that the shepherd comes and he's, he carries them because they're prone to wander. And also, I want you to notice here in, in verses 6 and 7 how he, he says, hey, he calls his friends and neighbors. We're going to come to that toward the end of why that's important. But he, he, he applies this to people who, uh, who come back to God in repentance. The fact that people come back, they turn back to God. In fact, the word repent simply means to, to turn back to God. It's the idea that you're pursuing something other than God, and you turn from that pursuit to pursue God who's who alone is really worthy of pursuit, that's what repentance is. It's a turning away, yes, but it's a turning toward God, okay? 
And when he says this, this phrase about those who, who need not repentance, this is a, a little bit of a dig probably at the Pharisees and scribes. And the idea here is that everyone does need repentance, but not everyone wants to admit it. Everyone pursues things other than God, but not everyone wants to admit that they pursue other things than God. In fact, we pursue other things and treat those other things as if they were God. Everyone needs to turn from that and turn to the, the true and living God who's shown himself through Jesus. Now, this is important because it, we need to understand this says something about the goodness of the shepherd. The scripture says in 2 Peter chapter 3, I'm reading from the New Living Translation, it says, the Lord isn't really being slow about his promise to return. Lord, when are you going to come back and straighten up this messed up world? Well, he's not slow as some people think. No, he is being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but he wants everyone to repent. That's what the scripture says. And so the picture of this good shepherd is simply, he's a good shepherd who seeks the wandering sheep, seeks to bring them back to himself, that they would turn back to himself. Let's look at the second parable, starting in verse 8. Jesus says, or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin and does not light a lamp, and does she not does not light a, a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now again, I want to come back to that. He calls his neighbors and friends in a bit. But here what's interesting is, is that one of the things that he's doing with this, this parable that's only slightly different than the first parable is he's emphasizing the work of the person finding the loss. In this case, it's not a good shepherd, but a good woman. A woman who really values this coin that was lost. Now, we know the silver coin would be worth about 18 pence. It may have been one of 10 silver coins that were worn as a headdress for a married woman to show that she was married and that a dowry was paid. So it could have been more symbolic than real, okay? Or than, than, than value. But, but there's something about this, okay? That, that the reality is she can't just go, oh, well, hopefully it'll turn up. She sweeps the whole house. She lights a lamp, you know, it must be evening or maybe there's just not very, very many windows in the house. But she is giving an intentional, diligent effort to find this. Now, Sarah and I had a similar experience with this this week because last week Sarah lost her keys to the car in the house. And this week I lost my phone. So again, apologies if you try to call me this week. I lost my phone. And we like turned over the house trying to find it. I, we, I still haven't found my phone. She still hasn't found her keys. And there, it, there's a frustration in, in losing something that's important to you. But I have to say, I didn't shed any tears over this. <laughs> because as, as important as my phone is, or as needful as my phone is as a tool, it's actually been kind of nice not to be distracted by it this week. The keys are maybe a bit more frustrating, but still. Now, the point is this. When, when, when Jesus tells this parable, and, he, and he's talking about that, that this woman would say, come and rejoice with me, it's not the fact that the coin is worth 18p, it's the fact that she so values the coin. And the higher the value, the greater the joy. I don't know if any of you parents have ever had a time when you've lost one of your children. You probably don't want to admit that publicly, but you may have had that, you know, that experience. You have a toddler with you and who's just maybe old enough to, to not sit in the shopping trolley at the supermarket, and so they're down there kind of walking next to you. 
and you're, you're getting this stuff off the shelf and you're doing this stuff and you turn around and they're gone. You can't find them. And you're like, that sense of panic. And you go down the, the aisle and you look and you can't see them in another aisle. You can't see them in another aisle. You can't see them. And you are freaking out. And when you finally find them, you grab them and you say, oh, please don't ever do that to me again because you value your children and you, you wouldn't want them to be stolen or lost. Now, again, when my, I lost my phone, it was kind of like, oh, man, lost my phone. A couple hours later, I went looking for it. Couldn't find it. A couple days later, I looked again. Couldn't find it. Turned over the house. Still couldn't find it. But you know what? It's a phone. If I find that phone, I probably won't go on Facebook as I did this week and say, hey, I've lost my phone. I probably won't go back, hey, family, rejoice me. I found my phone. I might enjoy the silence for a bit longer, even if I found my phone. <laughs> but I'll tell you what, if it was one of my children, you can bet I would tell everyone. I'd want everyone to rejoice with me. Now, here's the interesting thing about this idea of joy. And, and, and I, I think you guys are probably clever enough to pick up so far in these two parables that the joy here is saying something about God's attitude towards those who are lost. And we want to unpack that more. But let, let's talk about this a bit when it comes to the joy of Jesus. The Bible says this in, in the book of Hebrews. Again, I'm reading from the New Living Translation. It says, let us run with endurance the race God has set before us and we do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiated and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame, now is seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. Now this is interesting. Because here the author of Hebrews is telling us that what motivated Jesus to endure the, the horrible Suffering and shame of the cross was joy. Joy awaiting him. One, it was the joy that he had always had with the Father. The Bible talks about this. You can, you can, you can kind of eavesdrop onto Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17 and hear Jesus praying what we might call the high priestly prayer. And you hear him speak of this glory he had with the Father beforehand and the joy of that glory. This relationship that God the Father and God the Son have had from eternity past, this is a joy to him. There's never been a time in heaven where between, within God himself there wasn't great overflowing joy. He creates the world because he's a God of joy. And so Jesus is willing to endure the cross to return to that joy, but not just the return to that joy, but to bring us with him that we might experience his eternal joy. This is what he's talking about. See, as the good, shepherd, he, the good shepherd seeks the wandering sheep, so the good woman seeks the valued coin. Why? Because that coin is worth so much? No, because he places value on that coin, and he wants that coin to be back where it's meant to be. The joy is that it being back where it's meant to be. Now again, these were meant to encourage those tax collectors and sinners that were probably wondering, man, is there any hope for us? And so Jesus takes it a bit further. He goes a bit deeper with the same concept. In this last parable, this is the one we'll take more time on, which is, again, it's usually called the parable of the prodigal son. But look how it starts in verse 11. And Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. So it's really clear from even the beginning that this has not ever been about one son. 
And Jesus says, verse 12, And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of my property that is coming to me. And he divided his properties between them. Now, now what's going on here is, is we're going to see that there's these two sons, and the father seeks after both of them. Both sons in this parable are wayward. Both sons in this parable are wandering from a right relationship with their father. The first one, the more famous one, is one who's wandering through self-indulgence. And when, when this son, the younger son, says, give me my inheritance now, it's kind of a way to say, Dad, I wish you were dead already so I could get the money. Now, we know in a Jewish culture that that would have been advised against. Don't ever give your inheritance too soon to your son or who it's meant to go to because you may need it back when you, if you live longer than you think. So the idea from a biblical standpoint when it comes to inheritance is this idea of, you, Proverbs talks about having setting aside money for your children's children. And so you're, you're making sure that your taken care of so you're not a burden on your children. And then when you die, what's left is a blessing to your children and even your children's children. That's kind of the idea. So if you give your children the inheritance too quick, you know what happens? What happens is uh, you might live longer and then they have to take care of you and then what you meant to be a, a blessing becomes a burden. You following me? Now, now we're worried about if we wait to the end, the tax man will take all our inheritance is meant for our children. That's another issue. I won't preach about that today. This is supposed to be a happy day. <laughs> but but, but here's, the, here's the thing that's happening, what we're seeing. This tells us something about the kind of self-indulgence that is, is in this son's heart. Self-indulgence, listen, chooses pleasure over people. It's not that it's wrong to want pleasure. We were created for pleasure. Our desire for experiencing good things is something that the Scripture teaches is part of God's created order. God invented taste buds. I'm a little bit of a foodie, so that's a, I'm really happy about that one. God invented sex. Do you know that? Everyone gets uncomfortable when I say that, but it's true. God invented sex. God invented relationships. God invented beauty. There's nothing wrong with pleasure. It's good. God says it's very good. The problem is, is when we choose pleasure over people, when we take that good thing that's pleasure and we turn it into a God thing. This is what self-indulgence does. It's when we think, okay, I'm, I'm not coping, and so, you know, um, I, I just need to go binge eat because I'm not coping. And that's when something good turns into something bad. Or, or, or I'm not happy with, with my marriage right now, and so what I'm going to do is, or I'm, I'm happy that I'm single right now, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to please myself using pornography. Actually damaging ourselves for our future or present marriage. See, see the reality is, is that when we're self-indulgent, it's not just that we're enjoying something. Don't let the enemy lie to you and say, if you're enjoying something, you're self-indulgent. That's not true. It's when we enjoy something outside the boundaries that God intends. And so this is what this first young son's doing. This is how he's wandering. But also look at verses 13 to 16. It says, Not many days later, the young son gathered all that he had. He took a journey from into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that land, and he began to be in need. 
And so he went and he hired himself out to one of the, uh, sorry, one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And, as, and he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Now, there's a lot here that we could talk about, but this would have been kind of like a, a shocker to, to the audience that Jesus was speaking to. A Jewish audience, yes, tax collectors and sinners and scribes and Pharisees, but mainly all a Jew, Jewish audience. They would have been kind of like, whoa, I, 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 what a story. This was like a drama that was unfolding. Now, it's interesting because here, here's the thing that's happening. As this son is looking to be self-indulgent, and Jesus tells a story, Jesus unpacks where that self-indulgence leads. It leads to wastefulness. What does he do? He spends all his inheritance quickly. He wastes it. He squanders it away, it says. It, 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 leads, to, um, it leads to a vulnerability. Once he's broke, what happens? A famine comes. Now, don't necessarily see that as in God judging through a famine. It's just famines happen. And basically, though, if you squander all that you have and a famine comes, guess what? You're vulnerable. This is what happens. When there's self-indulgence, there's, you make ourselves more vulnerable to things. I think most of us here can relate to a time when we had a budget, we didn't keep that budget, and then we were, some big expense comes, and we're like, oh, what are we going to do? Many of us have experienced this. But also it leads to us to be desperate. The fact that he's, uh, in this parable, probably a, a Jewish person who's, who's leaving to a Gentile country and then feeding pigs unclean animals... The audience would have gone, ugh. But he's so desperate, he would eat what the pigs eat. You ever been in a place where you know you're kind of not where you're supposed to be with the Lord? Or maybe you're, you're wondering if you should actually follow the Lord. And you see what people who aren't Christians have, and you go, gosh, I wish I had what they had. Ever been there? There's a desperation we begin to feel. Not because God doesn't provide for us, but because we don't seek him for what he actually has for us. This is what self-indulgence does. But he also ends up being lonely. He, he wished he could eat this, and, and he just wished someone would help him, and he's in this foreign country, and he's all by himself. This is the picture that's being drawn. What happens next? Verse 17, this is where it begins to get really good. But he came to himself, it's almost like Luke is saying there was, a, or Jesus is saying there was a bit of madness to him as he's living the prodigal life. He came to himself and he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, father, I've sinned against you. I'm sorry, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as uh, uh, one of your hired servants. So he arose and he came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion, and ran and embraced and kissed him. We'll come back to that. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Here, here's what's happening. Jesus has already mentioned in the first two parables, hasn't he? The, the joy that's in heaven when one sinner repents. Guess what he's showing now? What it looks like when one sinner repents. This is what it looks like. 
Repentance, first and foremost, recognizes the mercy of the Father. You see, the son who's wasted his life, he's he's wandered away through the self-indulgence. He realizes, you know what? My only hope is my father who's good to his servants. He's a merciful father. You need to understand something. If you, if, you don't, if you can't go any farther with me in this sermon, understand this. Okay, listen. If you don't believe God is merciful, you will never repent. You might be religious. You might feel guilty and try to change your behavior. But you certainly won't turn your heart toward away from these loving bad things to loving God as the ultimate thing. You won't repent. If you don't believe God is merciful, you won't turn to him. So part of repentance, in fact, repentance cannot be separated from faith. If we say we believe, but we worship false gods, we lie. We don't really believe. If we say we believe, but we don't turn to God in repentance, we lie. We don't really believe. But if we don't really believe, he is merciful, and he is good, and he is full of grace, and he has all that we need, if we don't actually believe that he might actually show us mercy, we'll never turn back. This is why so often what we do, listen, what we do is we try to clean up our life, kind of what the prodigal thinking is thinking he's going to do. So the first thing repentance needs to do is recognize the mercy of the Father. The second thing it needs to recognize the wrongness of our actions. That's what we do when we repent. We recognize what I've been doing is bad. It's wrong. I've been putting pleasure before people. I, I, I've worshipped Good things as if they were God himself. Instead of just thanking God for good things and letting him dictate when I can enjoy them and not enjoy them. See, listen, there is something to this. In fact, this is the issue. Oftentimes, we only see repentance as a recognition of the wrong things we've done. But actually, it has to start with recognizing the mercy of our Father, and then it can be recognizing of the wrongness that we've done. But also, listen, there has to be a recognition of the brokenness of our relationship. What does the the, the prodigal say? He knows, I'm going to go back and tell my father this, because he knows I am not worthy to be called his son. No way. I'll I'll just be a servant. I'm not worthy. He recognized something broke in their relationship because of the choices he made. So so, so this is the thing that's really important for us to understand here, okay? As, As Jesus is telling this parable of the two sons, he's wanting us to see, with this first son who's wandering through self indulgence, wanting us to see what does that self indulgence look like, but also what does repentance look like? What does it look like to turn back? This is a, a challenge to the Pharisees, we'll see in a second, but it's also, also an encouragement to the tax collectors and sinners. How do I turn back to God? Well, know he's merciful and he'll take you back. Oh, how do I, how do I turn to God? Well, know that what you've been doing is wrong. That's probably easy for the tax collectors and sinners. Oh, how, how, do I, how do I turn back? Well, you recognize there's a broken relationship that he wants to repair. So it gets even better. Look at verse, look at verse 20 again. So when the, when the prodigal gets up, he arises, he goes to his father. It says, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. The idea here is that the father is out looking for his son. He's, he's taking the, the best viewpoint from his property and he's scanning the horizon to see, is he going to return him? Is he going to return? 
He's looking for his son. And as soon as he sees him, he doesn't go, oh, that stinking kid. The stress you've put me under. But it says he felt compassion. He was moved with mercy. You see, it's, what's interesting is the father looking for his return. And we'll see the language that the father uses, right? My son was dead and is alive again. He sees the relationship's over. That's what he means by deadness. Don't, don't necessarily read into this Jesus dying and rising from the dead, though there's a connection. What's happening there in this parable is Jesus is saying, look, the, the, a Jewish father, if his son would do this to him, he would say, you're dead to me. That, that the relationship was over. But he's looking in the hope that, that that relationship can be resurrected. It can be alive again. He expects resurrection. He hopes for resurrection. And this idea that the father runs and embraces him. You've probably heard this before. Mature Jewish men did not run. It was undignified. And they certainly didn't run toward a prodigal, a son who had shamed the family. You would maybe let the son come into your presence, but you would browbeat him. You would lay out the terms of, if, if there would be restoration, what those terms would be. You wouldn't run and then embrace him. In fact, the word there that says he embraced him is a word that's used, there's a certain tense in the Greek language that means it's happening over and over and over again. Like he wouldn't stop doing it. It was that. It was like when grandma kisses your face. Oh, can't stop thinking about you. Can't stop letting you go. You're like, okay, grandma, stop, you know. It was one of those things. My son, he embraces his son and won't stop embracing his son. He goes against cultural expectations to show that he indeed wants him back. Now, this is where it begins to connect to the death and resurrection of Jesus. The Jewish culture, the Jewish believers did not expect a suffering Messiah. One who would do something who would allow himself to be shamed so that he could be brought back in. They did not expect that. That's exactly what the father would do through the son to bring his people back to himself. And, and so what happens? The, the, the son wants to get out this speech, right? He, he says in, oh, where is it? I think it's in verse 22. It says, um, or, or no, the, the, the last part of verse 21 when he says, I'm not longer worthy to be your son. Um, it, it, the, some versions include the phrase that says, I should only be your servant. Some versions like this, the ESV, don't include it. And the reason for that is, in some manuscripts, it's not in, some older manuscripts, it's not in there. That last part of the phrase isn't in there. Newer manuscripts, it is in there. But this is why I think it shouldn't be in there. I, I think, one, because older manuscripts are probably more reliable, but also I think, listen, what's happening here is he, the, the father's just kissing the son like crazy, so tears running down his face, so thankful to have his son back with him, back from the dead, so to speak, that what happens is, is the son is just kind of can't handle that, and I can just see him kind of going, dad, dad, wait, wait, I need to give this speech, and starts to give the speech, but before he can finish the speech, what does the father do and say? But the father says to the servants, kind of ignores the son's speech, and he says, Bring quickly the best robe. The best robe would have been the father's robe. Bring my best robe, this could say. And put it on him. And put a ring on his hand. A ring was a sign of authority. It was how you put a signet to say, I have the right to purchase or sell this. It was a sign of authority. And put shoes on his feet. 
One of the ways you could tell the difference between a son who worked for his father and a servant who worked for his master was the son had shoes, the servant did not. In other words, here's what he's doing. He's not just saying, you can come back, I'll make sure you're fed. He exalts him to an honored position. You wear my best coat. You wear this ring of authority. You wear the shoes of sonship. I want everyone to know you are right now fully restored. And then what does he do after that? He says, verse 23, and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and alive again and was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. The father calls for a public celebration. You guys ever heard this phrase? This is, uh, I don't know if you maybe have heard this or not heard this. But you will, uh, what you most celebrate, other people will, rep- will rep- I can't say it, replicate. You ever heard that? What you will celebrate, people will replicate. Ever heard that phrase before? It's kind of like they use it in business, they use it in church growth stuff. You know, it's actually really true. What we celebrate before our children is what they will replicate. Dads, what do you get most excited about? Come on, we got to get to church. We're going to be late. Or, the football's on. Yes. Don't think because you're saying you're making church a priority. If you're celebrating football or food or anything else more than you celebrate, guess what your kids are going to replicate? They might be great football fans, but are they going to be Jesus followers? It's a truth. Now, now the, the, the whole thing that we want to see here is that what Jesus is trying to get across to the Pharisees to the scribes who are like, why is Jesus embracing these tax collectors and sinners? Why is he eating with these people? Is to show them, look, God's not just eating with them. He wants to celebrate with them. God celebrates seeing people restored to himself. It's the most important thing to him. Do you think there's, there was less joy in heaven before or after creation and the fall of humanity? What do you think? Before creation, uh, was, there, was there more joy? After creation, it, was there more joy? What do you think? Before or after? It's a trick question. You knew it was a trick question, didn't you? It, uh, always. It's always the same. Because the joy that God has is a joy that's eternal, that's unbroken. It's a joy that he longs to share. And God in his wisdom decided to create the universe with the capacity to fall, knowing it would fall, knowing it would fall into decay, knowing he would have to take on flesh, come to this earth as a person of Jesus, knowing he would have to suffer and die a shameful death, knowing he would resurrect from the dead, knowing that it would bring many people into his joy forever. Because what you, what you want uh, replicated most, you celebrate most. And what he wanted to celebrate was the joy that he himself had and wanted to share it with you. God doesn't need anything from any of us. He only wants to give us who he is and what he's always had. That's what he wants. Do you realize every single command that God gives you, every expectation he has, he tells you that you need to be ready for expectation of difficulty and suffering. Every single bit of it is for what? Joy. 
that you would know the joy that he has known forever, that you would be with him in that joy and enjoy him forever. Anybody ever heard of the uh, Westminster Confession or the Westminster Shorter Catechism? Anybody ever heard of that? Maybe a few of you kind of Anglicans and stuff, yeah? What, what it is, is basically it was a, a, a doctrinal statement, a statement of belief that was put out in the 17th century. I think it was 17th century. And it kind of just says, you know, it's kind of just laying out what's the theology, what should we believe about God? And it has some great stuff in it, to be honest. And one of the things it says is the chief end of man, this is why, this is why God's made man, is that they would enjoy, they would know God and enjoy him forever. This is what Jesus is trying to get through, through this parable. The Father calls for a public celebration, listen, because this is what heaven is. It's an eternal celebration of how great it is to know God. Don't picture fat angels playing on a harp on a cloud. It's it's more than that. It's bigger than that. It's practical. It's, It's like... Have you ever had a circumstance in your life, have you ever had a season or a day in your life where you're doing something and that thing has purpose and that thing brings you joy and that thing brings you together with the people that you're doing together and you thought, it doesn't get better than this. Have you ever had that? I've had maybe a handful of those days. But I'll tell you, when we have that, listen, this is what we have, a taste of heaven. A place of complete celebration of the God of joy who brings us into his place of joy. This is why he sent Jesus. This is what Jesus is trying to get across. Now, often when people teach this, they kind of stop there and say, okay, this is what it is. And then now let's look at these bad second sons. This bad second one. The first one's good. He came back. The second one's bad. But actually... That's not the point of the parable. The point of this parable is Jesus is saying there's two sons. One wandered through self-indulgence. The other wandered through self-righteousness. Oh, I'm not as indulgent as those guys are. Look what happens. Verse 25. It says, now his older son was in the field. He's doing what he's supposed to be doing, right? Working for his father in the field, and as he came, he drew into the house, and he heard music and dancing, and he called one of his servants, and he asked what these things meant. He had no clue of what was going on here. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. Now, the idea here in this parable is the older brother isn't even thinking. He's giving no thought to his younger brother who's lost. He's not thinking, is he back? Is little bro back? Is he restored to us? He's not thinking that. He's not thinking about it at all because this is the issue. The self-righteous give no thought to the lost. Those who are assured of their goodness, those who are assured of their deserving a place before God, don't think about, give no thought to the state of the lost. If they do think about the lost, they think, that's their fault. So what happens in verse 28? The older son is angry, and he refused to go in. 
We'll come back to the rest of that verse in a second. He says to his father in verse 29, Look, these many years I have served you. I never disobeyed your command. You never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. There's something interesting about that. Who does the, the brother want to celebrate with? Everyone in the household? No, just his friends. Just those that are like him. But when this son of yours, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, when he returns, you killed the fatted calf for him. Now here's what's going on. The self-righteous, they act entitled and bitter at the same time. Those two things go together, by the way. Entitlement and bitterness. I deserve better. I'm bitter. Who says you deserve better? In a very real sense, man, everything this side of hell for us is grace. (laughs) In a very real sense. I deserve better? Hmm. There's something self-righteous when we have that attitude. Now, I know some of you guys, your lives are a lot tougher than mine. So I'm not trying to be trite about your suffering. Some of you guys have gone through much more difficult things than I've gone through. You're going through much more difficult things than I'm going through. But we have to guard ourselves against this self-righteous attitude that gets frustrated when someone else does well, that is bitter when we don't have what we think we deserve. But also you notice in verse 30, what does he say? In verse 30, how does he talk about his brother? He says, this son of yours. I do this to Sarah all the time. (laughs) Not so much now because the kids are pretty much moved out. But when the kids were all at home, your daughter just did this. Your son has done this again. We kind of do it tongue in cheek, but this is what we do. And the idea is what he's doing in a very bitter way is he's refusing any connection to his brother. This is what the self-righteous do. I don't want any connection to those people. So here's where it gets good. What does the father do? How does the father pursue the second brother as he did the first brother? Look at verse 28. It says, when he was angry and refused to go inside. I mean, think about the picture that's being drawn here that Jesus is kind of drawing for us. You have the younger son who is on the outside has been brought back in. You have the older son who uh, was on the inside but has left and refuses to come back in. And he says, the father says to him, verse 28, it says, or what happens is it says, he came out and he entreated him. Again, that word for entreated is in that Greek tense that means over and over and over again. You get a picture of a father begging a son, please, son, come in. Please join the celebration. You are wanted here. So when he doesn't want to come in, what does the father? The father does goes out to him to bring him in. What else happens? Look at verse 31. It says, and he said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. The father says to the older son, the self-righteous son, son, don't you understand? You belong on the inside. You're meant to be here with us. The inheritance is still yours. We want you here. I want you to think about this because I think this is what we miss when we talk about this parable. We forget that the love that God had, the love that Jesus showed to the tax collector and the sinner, he also showed to the Pharisee and the scribe. 
Because it's funny, a lot of us, if we were to tell our stories, especially those of us who didn't grow up in church, if we were to tell our stories, often our stories are about, I was just this wretch, and then God saved me. I was doing all these bad things, and then God saved me. And it's like, that's who I was. Now I'm a pretty good person, I do this right thing. And what we end up doing is, we end up trading these, this wandering of self-indulgence for a wandering of self-righteousness. And, and when we do that, even if we begin to realize that, we start thinking, oh, oh, man, oh, man, I better just try a bit harder. Or we begin to feel like the older brother, I'm frustrated, God, because I'm trying to do what I'm supposed to be doing and I still have no peace, I have no joy, nothing's working out for me. And we forget when the same Father who pursued us by His Holy Spirit and brought us to Jesus, that same God who's done that for us when we were still sinners, is doing it now for us when we are self-righteous sinners. This is what he does. I love too what happens in verse 32. It says, It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this brother was dead and now, and now is, and is alive. He was lost and now is found. See what the father's doing? He's insisting on the appropriateness of celebration. He's insisting on it. I, I have to say, and, I, and I, I don't say this to anybody to make anybody feel guilty, okay? Nor do I say this to, to exalt a certain kind of expression. But I have to confess, sometimes I, I am grieved at my own attitude and I'm grieved at our expression as a church because we can be so joyless. We, we are so slow to celebrate. Do you know why we come together on a Sunday? We gather in His name to support one another, to equip one another, to encourage one another, and to celebrate the goodness of our God. That's why we do communion. Thank you, Lord, that it's all what you've provided. Thank you, Lord, that it's going to be sufficient until you come back. And we're so slow to celebrate. And we wonder why people don't replicate it. See, the father insists to the son that it's right to celebrate. Notice, too, the tone of the father is not one of chastisement. It's one of correction to bring back in. See, when Jesus tells these parables, he wants us to see the good father who seeks his wayward sons. And the, the thing ends right there. It just ends there. There's nothing else that he says. You almost get a picture that he tells these stories and then he gets up and he walks away. It's like he, he's not even sort of calling, he's not making an altar call. He's not saying, come forward and believe in Jesus. He's not, he's not doing any of this stuff. He's just simply walking away. It's as if he's leaving the son with a choice. It's as if Jesus is leaving the Pharisees and the scribes with a choice. He's saying, listen, you don't like these tax collectors and sinners to be around me. You, you don't want me to acknowledge their value. But I, I want you to know you're welcome to eat with us too. You can come and celebrate with us too. You ever had someone tell you, I don't want to go to church because church is so full of hypocrites? Anybody ever told you that? Have, have you ever said that? You have. Well, guess what? You should come because one more won't hurt. All of us are guilty of this. And the Father wants 
all of us. It's interesting because in the, what, what the Father is kind of doing in, in pursuing him and assuring of his place inside and insisting on the appropriateness of celebration is he's kind of saying this is what repentance looks like for you. For you, it's coming in and rejoicing that God is blessing or the Father has blessed the Son and welcomed him back and put him back in that position. That's what repentance looks like for you. So here's the question I want to end with, a chance for us to respond as... Josh comes back up and we get ready to sing the song and go to the table together. Which son are you? Which son are you? Because here's the thing, repentance is not a one-time thing. Repentance is something, like as Craig prayed appropriately this morning, repentance is something we do every day, moment by moment. It's a turning back to God. How have you wandered? You've come in here today. What would you say describes the wanderings you've been guilty of this week or even this morning? Are they wanderings of self-indulgence? Are they wanderings of self-righteousness or maybe a bit of both? And, and, and more than this, how good do you see God? How good is God? Do you really believe that the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God that's revealed through the person of Jesus, is so good that he says, come back, come inside. Let's put that robe back on. Let's make sure your feet are shod with shoes. Let's make sure that rings on your finger. Come back. Do you believe he's good enough to say, hey, come and celebrate. Celebrate the work that I'm doing to bring people back to myself. Do you believe that? Do you believe God's that good? This is where the rubber meets the road, isn't it? Do you believe that God is as good as he's shown himself to be in Jesus? I believe. I really do. I really enjoyed preparing this week. <laughs> God is so good. He's so good to welcome us back. Let's go back to him. But let's celebrate right now his amazing grace. Let me, let me pray to that end. Father, I do pray that you would help us right now. It's easy for us to be distracted, Father. You know this. You know that we're thinking about other things we want to do today. Lord, we're thinking about the stuff that we, uh, we'd rather be doing or that we wish we'd be doing, Lord. And we maybe even feel so weighed down by our wanderings. But Father, I pray that you would bring us back that you would show us, you would remind us of how good you are, of your amazing grace. And that we'd be able to sing this as our prayer, our celebration of your love for us. Meet us here, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Bless you guys. Hope to see you guys out there. And oh, Tuesday, prayer meeting, please. We welcome all of you guys to come. It's been a really sweet time. There's still plenty of room, even socially distanced if you need that. There's still plenty of room. Tuesday night, 7.30 at uh, Hillcrest. God bless.